0: Uh, I'd like to deepen some of the reflections I've given this morning on the uh, play, the interplay of intention, jetana or manasanchetana and attention, manasikara and all its uh, dignified forms, uh, namely sati. And uh, particularly tonight an interesting but uh, much lesser known term called Sampajanya, clear comprehension or uh, full awareness, sometimes translated, which is a fascinating term, little context to this. It seems mindfulness has left the field of uh, ex- exclusive contemplative exercises and has reached mainstream psychology mainstream. Uh, mainstream society you know you can be uh, learning mindfulness in just about any field from education to uh, um, uh, eating disorders to management to you know you can probably find a mindfulness course somewhere not too far from where you live in the uh, wilder and Uh, milder forms of human activities uh, in which mindfulness is in some way uh, taught, which I deem to be a good thing. But I would at the same time like to retain some of the precision and some of the clarity that I believe to uh, uh, exist in the Buddhist teaching around mindfulness. So while I'm glad that some of this has carried over into uh, mainstream society, I'm also keen for people like you who make considerable gestures of uh, renunciation and effort and dedication to uh, practice mindfulness and to practice it under the conditions here, which i deem to be privileged, that we don't lose some of the clarity and some of the um, precision of the teaching around mindfulness. So, one of the things that becomes apparent when we speak of mindfulness in the Buddhist sutta, it's obvious that mindfulness is not the unique virtue that delivers us. As much as we are uh, find praises of mindfulness, nowhere it says being mindful is actually making us free. Nowhere it says mindfulness is enough to get over anger. Nowhere it says mindfulness is enough to wean the mind off of its uh, unhealthy habits. Nowhere it says mindfulness alone is enough to bring alive all the wholesome qualities. Just to be clear about this, there is no doubt that mindfulness is indispensable in the development of wisdom, indispensable in the development of morality, indispensable in the development of stillness of mind and of the for immeasurable states, in all of these domains mindfulness is absolutely indispensable. However, mindfulness is not the sole player in there. If we look at the most famous mindfulness discourse is probably the Satipatthana discourse or one uh, of the Satipatthana discourses. I alluded that there are a a number of them. Uh, Even in that most famous discourse Sati is not actually mentioned as the unique quality that delivers. Sati is, in that context, mentioned with two other of his close friends. One of them is called Atapi, which means ardent or keen or with some degree of vigor. Um, And its other close friend is called Sampajano, that's the Adjective of sampajanya, of the noun sampajanya, clear comprehension. So the three, satima, this is the adjective for sati, the quality for mindfulness, atapi, uh, ardency or ardor or um, keenness, and sampajanya, clear comprehension, these two things are mentioned every single time the term sati occurs in the same breath. So it is very obvious to me that uh, while sati is an indispensable key quality that holds both the development of stillness and of insight in its germ form already or in its seed form already um, as facets of its function, it nowhere says these are the unique this is the unique quality that, that makes us free. So if I wanted to be critical of the popular understanding of mindfulness, then I would see um, on one level that mindfulness is being elevated as the panacea for everything, as the unique delivering function of mind. At the same time, I would see mindfulness as being um, a little bit flattened. Yeah? Mindfulness is reduced uh, largely to some of its functions, namely that it is precognitive, that it is not about thinking, Um, or that it helps us distancing our discursive thought patterns. These are indeed qualities of mindfulness, but they're not the only qualities of mindfulness. As some of you may remember, the imagery I spoke of about 10 days ago uh, speaks to us of a quality that has many more facets than just uh, a little bit of cognitive distancing from our discursive activities and um, the capacity to say follow uh, an event in time. There is more to Sati than that. So one of the challenges is restoring Sati's friend. Sati's many friends in fact and one of these friends is the clear comprehension Sampajanya, which is touched in other texts of the suttas. Let me read you some of this. There are some interesting passages which tell us what the Buddha meant by clear comprehension. I'll try to unravel some of the etymology in a moment, but just to give you three contexts in which Sampajanya is always referred to. Uh, these are three tiny snippets of totally different sutta teachings, which all deal with examples of how clear comprehension takes place. And how, monks, is a monk aware? Here, monks, in walking to and fro, a monk practices clear comprehension. In looking ahead and looking aside, he practices clear comprehension. In bending and stretching, stretching, in using robes and bowl. In eating and drinking, chewing and tasting, in excreting and urinating, in walking, standing, sitting, sleeping, walking, waking, pardon waking speaking, and being silent, he practices clear comprehension. So, this is highly applicable. Yeah, it's something uh, we, I would expect, go through uh, in the course of a day. It's not something we even need to be in the meditation hall. And it seems to encompass a number of our uh, uh, postures, activities, and, uh, in in fact, uh, places. Walking, standing, sitting, sleeping, waking, speaking, being silent, he practices clear comprehension. Another interesting passage, which seems more meditative at the first glance, sounds like this. And which monks is the development of stillness that, when developed and made much of leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension? Here, monks, feelings are known as they arise, feelings are known as they endure, feelings are known as they vanish. Perceptions are known as they arise, perceptions are known as they endure, perceptions are known as they vanish, thoughts are known as they arise, thoughts are known as they endure, Thoughts are known as they vanish. So we have clear comprehension here as being a faculty that discerns process events in the stuff of the that, com- that makes up our experience. Thoughts, feelings, perceptions. Yeah. And then we have a third little example spoken to Ananda. Here Ananda, a monk is mindful as he walks to, he is mindful as he walks fro, he is mindful as he stands, he is mindful as he sits, he is mindful as he lies down, he is mindful as he sets to work. This Ananda is a mode of uh, recollection when developed and made much of in this way leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. So we have something called Sampajanya which obviously is applicable in our activities, it is applicable in respect to our own experience and it is always mentioned almost in the same breath as the famous mindfulness, as the famous sati. So our first job is to distinguish them. Why would they uh, have that proximity if they were identical or if they were congruent? And if they're not so, what makes the difference between them? I understand sati to be a function of mind, technically it is a sankhara, so it belongs to the fourth of my kandas. Uh, and in that uh, it has a, a component of will, it has a component of intention in it. Um, and that Quality of mindfulness establishes as its primary function relationship. If you want it really, really simple, it creates a relationship. Sati gets in touch with something. Sati is meeting something, is contacting something, and it establishes a type of relationship with that something. Be that something inside my body, or inside my mind, or be that something uh, outside. Sampajanya creates a sort of reference. Sampajanya is the capacity of referring that relationship back into a bigger context. So while Sati does not necessarily um, make big choices or judgment about the value of the thing it is associating with, Sampajanya does. Sampojanya does create a structure of references and also a structure of values about the thing we're having a relationship with. This is a, an important little distinction. In other words, sampojanya create a little frame and a context. A context that has something to do with values, that has something to do with meaning, that has something to do with experience. Now, I know this will not go down well if, by Sati, you have understood something that is completely divested of past and future, that is uh, an attribute of a quality called now that has nothing to do with all the history. Unfortunately, I, I don't believe in such a now, to be honest with you. I believe this the, the, con- the construct of that now is one of our present-day Buddhist myths. There is no such thing as an unconstructed now. In fact, if I was going to be an indologist, I would think this is just bad translation. The terms that are translated as now, and we have glorified, as in be in the here and now, as if the now is something we can move into, and then nothing bad ever happens to us. Um, That now is in the Pali language, is called Dhamma, that which is presently arisen. So, what we happily call now and refer to as a noun, as something reified that really exists, and if we move into the now, if we live in the now, then nothing bad happens to us, we're safe. Um, this Pali word sp- simply speaks of events or phenomena that have arisen in the present moment. It doesn't say it has nothing to do with the past. On the contrary, things that have arisen in the present moment have a lot to do with the past, because in the past that's where the roots lie for the things that are presently arisen. So, um, bear with me for a moment, and if you can try to put the now in apostrophes. Uh, Let us demystify that now a bit. There is no such thing that arises out of nothing and has no connection with your past. The way we operate on the neurological level, the way we operate on a perceptual level, the way we operate on a physiological level, uh, all of this has roots in the past. I do never perceive anything in completely neutral ways. Just to be clear, any perception is based on things that have to do with my past. So the idea that I could go and live in a now, just at the crest of the wave, and if I stay there, I can kind of permanently serve away from suffering or something like that, is, um, it's... It's an interesting concept, but it's part of what I would call Buddhist bambification. It doesn't actually exist. We make that up. It helps us. It's comforting, but it doesn't actually work that way. What we experience presently is influenced by things we have previously experienced. Our bodies, our senses, our minds have grown by previous experience, and they will perceive the present that has arisen in terms of uh, the history this system, perceptually, neurologically, sensorially, psychologically, has evolved into. Yeah. So there is no clean, present experience. That doesn't mean we cannot learn new things, or that doesn't mean we can grow out of things. We, I, I very much uh, credit the Buddha for a tremendous vision that he sees Uh, that he sees for human beings that they can grow out of their uh, perpetuation of past, past mistakes, past habits, and past limitations. We very much can do so. That's one of the great things about his teaching. But not by believing in the myth that we can go and live in a little place, in a little golden place called now. And if we manage to stay there by controlling our minds from stopping to think or stopping to go anywhere else, uh, then we would be happy ever after. So, how is that now created? Or how is that now influenced? That now is influenced by things like Sati Sampajanya, by clear comprehending. Uh, You can put my uh, point very easy to test. You know, you will never have a, a, a natural experience, a neutral experience of a plate of food. You know, that plate of food will look very differently if you're hungry or if you're satiated your need to eat food or your degree of satiation or even your awareness that you have just overeaten will, all three possible situations, will deeply influence how you perceive that plate of food in front of you. We do not perceive neutrally. We always have needs. Sometimes these needs are gratified, sometimes these needs have receded, sometimes these needs are uh, pressing and urgent. But our perception of what takes place is never neutral. We always have an axe to grind. We always have issues. We always want something or don't want something. Now there are moments when we do less of this. And these are the moments when the mind is more clear. But let's let's be sober about this. The, The power of this exercise doesn't consists in getting us to a place where we stop needing things, where we have ultimate control of the five khandhas right there in my left fist, you know, tightly gripped, and I, nothing is going to escape my the clarity and sharpness of my samadhi anymore. That is not the freedom of, the, of which this practice speaks of. This practice speaks of an understanding. And that understanding comes by participating and at the same time seeing and feeling and resonating clearly with what takes place yeah it sounds so simple yeah you've heard it yeah he is capable To know feelings as they arise, feelings as they persist, feelings as they vanish. To know perceptions as they arise, perceptions as they endure, perceptions as they vanish. Thoughts as they arise, thoughts as they endure, thoughts as they vanish. The power that liberates the human heart comes not from believing that thoughts are impermanent. It does not come from um, the capacity of the mind to block thoughts and other discursive activity out of my mental functioning and thereby attain a peace which is unshakable. The power consists, there is such a place, no doubt, and there is such a peace from that, but it is not a peace that has much future. You know. It is a peace that entails a lot of exercise, it entails some degree of talent in, in the uh, acquisition of samatha, and entails a lot of control over an environment generally a, um, an environment like this it's very difficult to uh, hold a job and raise a family and drive a car across the country and stay in that state uh, in fact I would think you're a dangerous driver if you do that to be honest with you I'd, I'd rather see you equipped with some circumspect and mobile sati than with a exclusive absorption state of mind while you're driving doesn't lend itself very easy to driving carefully this kind of state. So while there is such a state and while there is a value to that state, there's no, the Buddhist teaching made no uh, leave no doubt that there's a great value to uh, high degrees of collectedness of mind, this is not what Sampajanya is about. The freedom and the power of transformation come not from our capacity to control events in the, in the mind, but to adopt another attitude. And that attitude comes from a profound and deeper familiarization with things like change. With, uh, that we d- learn to know what makes a perception a perception. How does this animal work? Yeah? What does it feed on? What does it produce? What does it have as results? What are its allies? What are the friends it makes? How does it connect to other bits like emotions and body states? Understanding these processes is what transforms the heart, not the capacity to control them out of existence. So, it's an interesting um, teaching which is found only in the commentaries, and I'm rarely not, I'm usually not a great. advocate of crediting commentaries above the sutta teachings, but uh, there are some fantastic teachings in there despite uh, some bad press. Some of the uh, uh, practitioners and even scholars give the commentaries. You know. Generally commentaries are, um, ideally, they they elucidate what the text uh, have said uh, and at worst, commentaries say, when the text says one thing, the commentary then says, but what it really means is da-dum, 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 da-dum. da-dum. Yeah? So, and there's a lot of that in any commentary, as far as I'm aware uh, of the Christian tradition. I, what little I have learn, learned of the Jewish tradition. And uh, I know a lot about the Buddhist tradition. And commentaries seem to have a certain similarity. So the further you get away from uh, from the the deepest or oldest or most authentic layer of teaching, the more d- defined and uh, f- complex uh, the commentaries get. And uh, also, one has sometimes the feeling the further removed from relevance this is, or the further removed from meditative experience. But there are exceptions. Um, one of these exceptions uh, s- strikes me uh, we find in the teaching around Sampajanya. So, the commentary speak of four types of clear comprehension, which I have found very, very powerfully evocative. The first type of clear comprehension is called Saataka, Sampajanya, which means the clear comprehension of purpose. Yeah? Atta means what is the goal, what is the purpose of a thing, and Sa means with, so then the whole thing is turned into a composite and the, the carbide comes from there. So we have a clear comprehension of purpose and this um, is understood as actually something we need to do before we sit down and meditate. We need to be clear what we actually want. We need to be clear what the goal is of our lives. We need to be clear what the values are that we have access to when we listen into our hearts. Yeah. And this purpose Uh, of our sampajanya, our comprehension of what the purpose is of the things we do and the things we train in and the things we try to practice is a profound value. If we do know what the purpose is, then we have a motive and we have also a clarity in, in which direction we go. What could such a purpose or what would such a question be that helps me establish purpose uh, for me it would be useful to say what is important um, short term mid term and long term you know? long term I'm a buddhist practitioner i I would like to um, understand what creates suffering, and I would like to understand how I contribute to that suffering, and I would really like to understand what helps suffering to end and how i can contribute to the ending of suffering first my own story but then you know the suffering of other people's lives maybe suffering in other people's lives i happy i happen to be contributing to this is also very important i'd like to make this a better place i'd like to understand more deeply uh, how to free this heart and how to help create conditions that en- enable other people to free their hearts yeah. so this is the big picture. Short term is uh, I like to get through this talk yeah, without making a fool of myself, without selling the Buddha short and without either giving you wrong information or boring you to death. That's my short-term goal. Mid-term uh, I'm concerned that we have a retreat together here and uh, that I bring whatever I have to offer into the flow of this retreat and uh, you know put in my two pence in, uh, to the many conditions that make this fantastic retreat possibility um, take place. You know, so many factors that take place that make this possible and I like to put in my two pence that, um, to help so this might be a very simplistic way of pondering how uh, the purpose, establishing some comprehensions around the purpose of uh, my practice, putting this in short-term, mid-term, long-term. Sometimes uh, our mid- and long-term goals may look considerably different from our short-term goals. Yeah? Sometimes you may decide I need to get through this meeting without hitting him. Sure, I need to go. My, I need to strategize a way that I can get my indignation and anger, which he has incurred, uh, that I do not uh, act out on this. Long term, I help hope to save all living beings. But short term, <laughs> um, I just short term. I like to abstain from public acts of violence. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, I think to to establish such big pictures helps. You know, if you uh, come into a situation of pressure or, or surprise, that you know you have been pondering this, that you don't need to start from scratch, that you actually know you have decided to be, be a good human being. And good human beings are beings who uh, do not refuse your relationship to other human beings. Um, good human beings are beings who try to support other human beings in waking up, or at least in not uh, growing deeper into darkness. Um, We try to help minimize suffering. If that is not possible, we try to at least not maximize the suffering. And If that is not possible, we try to at least not let them alone, or we try to comfort when we can't minimize the suffering. We have a kind of scale of approach, how we like to hold our Um, non-separate nature of experience. And it's good to have thought through that, to have kind of made some decisions around this. Now, I don't actually think you truly need to invent this for yourself. I think we have a sphere of values, and if we listen into our hearts, then this sphere of values speaks. I do actually see that human beings, when they get in touch with their uh, that sphere that holds their values, they acknowledge that they are connected to others. They acknowledge that others can do things for them and they can do things for others. Some of these others are not necessarily the people I would have sat down at the same table with, but somehow, even if I don't apparently like them, they are part of humanity and I am part of humanity, and that already creates a bond. Now, there are moments I'm more aware of that bond, moments I'm less aware of that bond, but it's there sentient beings I have a connection to. And that connection comes with some kind of obligation. Every part participation generally uh, not just gives me a feeling of being connected to, but also it gives me some kind of obligation. Yeah. The things I learn, they all make me more responsible. There is no knowledge imparted on you that wouldn't make you in some way in deeper ways responsible for the not just for a cognitive understanding of that knowledge but actually from a felt and lived realization of your heart that you are called into a relationship and into a responsibility the more you know the more you're called into that relationship so acknowledging that is one thing I don't think we need to actually impose such values into our lives, but we need to simply acknowledge that they're already there, that we are connected, that we do have a sense of what is helpful and what is not, that we experience more happiness if we are not alone, and if we have shared values and people who resonate with our joys and with our suffering. So. Clear comprehension of purposeness, of purpose, uh, important thing. What are the bits that are important in my life? What do I do to make them more real? What are my attitudes, my intentions and my activities so that I grow towards a realization of these things I have identified as the purpose of my life? purpose of my practice, purpose of my meditation. I think that's a good question. The second of those sampajanyas of those clear comprehensions, is an interesting one. It's called Sapaya sampajanya and it means it is a clear comprehension of the suitability of the tools I apply in my practice. Upaya, the word for skill in means that you're familiar with, is kind of contracted here in the composite. Sapaya comes from Sa and Upaya. So the second clear comprehension asks after the efficiency of what I do. It asks, does it work? Is it calibrated, what I'm trying to practice? Is it effective? Does it actually shift things? Does it move? Or is it just an inspiring thought, but unfortunately it has never touched ground? Yeah. So the second clear comprehension asks us um, are we, in a a measured way, applying ourselves? Is the measure of the way we apply ourselves in practice and in meditation and in the way we live, is this measured? That's a good question. It's nice to have good intentions, but it's uh, definitely nicer to connect the good intentions with the practical skill to enact these good intentions so that they take off, yeah, that they move something. Buddhists sometimes think, yeah, no, it just, it's important, the intention really is important. Yeah, it's, uh, as long as you have good intentions you get away with blue murder. Yeah, uh, yeah intention is important, and in fact you can't supplant it. Uh, um, it is the decisive factor, but you know, sometimes it's good to look whether the intentions are actually matched with practical skill. Yeah. And if I have the possibility to hone a little bit on those practical skills, then then this is good. Does my meditation object actually help to curb my compulsive thinking, for example? Or if it doesn't help after three weeks, then you may consider choosing another meditation object. You you may consider that something needs changing. Maybe it takes more than five minutes a day. Or maybe you know you should make your object of meditation a slight bit bigger so that you actually feel it longer than ten split seconds. Yeah. So this sort of comp- clear comprehension asks: Does it work? Is it? Is there a measure between what I wish, what I have identified as purpose? and my effort, what I do. Sometimes there is not enough effort, but sometimes the effort is wonderfully there, but it's just something not quite meeting. Yeah? I haven't taken in account some aspect of practical reality which uh, can't be fixed by good intention and a lot of effort. It needs some skill. Yeah? So the second Sampajanya asks skill, measure and effectiveness. Yeah? Soberly, the economy, of my effort and the vision of my purpose need to be met with practical application and uh, necessarily readjustments in what I do. The third of the Sampajjana is called Gojara Sampajanya it's an interesting word, Go is a cow, Gojara is the pasture, that's where the cow is walking or grazing. much of Buddhist language, in fact, is about cows. You would be surprised how much agriculture is in the uh, a language of the Pali Canon. There's lots of this because obviously this is a, a pre-industrial culture. and Many of the metaphoric uses um, that have come to denote functions, qualities, or states of mind uh, somehow are referred back to the cows. Yeah? and uh, Cow grazing or pasture even the Buddha, at one stage, is called the, the, the ultimate bull, yeah? Narasabha, the, so, the gorchara means basically domain. Today we would probably say the domain of practice. Now this, this clear comprehension is two, two major parts. One part is what I'm actually doing. What is the actual domain of my meditation? When I sit down, what is it I'm actually doing? You know, I'm not just kind of vaguely meditating in an inspiring place, but I'm actually, well, being with my breath at the level of my belly, uh, the size of my hand, uh, this is my primary anchor. And um, when I do that and my sensations gradually recede, I open up my object of awareness in the belly a bit bigger and just take whatever sense of expansion I can feel within the belly. This is an exercise. I'll do this. What I've noted, uh, spoken of as plan B this morning also is part of this. What I do when I notice I'm not with the belly. Yeah? What, what I'm doing when I curve around the globe for the third time this morning before breakfast. Plan B, how I return to my object of awareness, that I do so gently but resolutely with uh, uh, with the warmth of a mother who pulls away her kid from something that um, we either don't have time for, or that is slightly dangerous. Yeah, so, come here, come come back over here, yeah, we'll go. This kind of thing. No judgments, no grumbling, uh, no verdicts. Just kind of inciting the mind to return to a declared exercise. And knowing that exercise, knowing what I have agreed with myself doing and knowing what I do when I don't do that. Yeah. Knowing when it does something else and knowing what I then can do to bring it back, to return it, to motivate it, to wake it up if it's sleepy, to uplift it if it's grumpy or unmotivated, to move when it is got, when it has gotten stiff or, or, or stodgy, Knowing these things, having the skill in vitalizing my mind, in gladdening the mind, in stilling the mind, in uplifting the mind, in motivating the mind, these are skills. These are tools, and they are far, they're part of this first section of Gojara uh, Sampajanya, of the Sampajanya of uh, clear comprehension around the domain of my practice. Skilled meditators, they're not just nice weather meditators. If you're a skilled meditator and since you're here and you have to jump through a few hoops to get here, I know you you have familiarity with your mind in other than ideal conditions. You know, it's easy to sit here and the mind naturally collects, goes into brightness and you just, the hours pass by and you're just kind of roaring in stillness. That's wonderful. But uh, that's not the difficult part. We all know how to do that when it does that, but we the difficult part is when it doesn't do that. You know. How can I b- bring my heart to believe that this state I'm currently experiencing is not permanent, is not the only permanent experience? Unfortunately, the Buddhists have never told me. You know. How do I know that? How do I convince myself that the, amongst all those perishable, delicate, exquisite states, this grotty, stodgy state I'm happening to be in is not the damn permanent one. You know. How do I know that? How do I convince myself? How do I tweak my mind out of this suspicion that this may be the rest of my (laughs) you know, Ian? That's a skill. No, that's not awakening, but it's a kind of it's a skill of a parent, it's a skill of an elder brother or sister, it's a skill to learn to be with a mind that is not perfect. And much of our practice is about such skills, much more than our Uh, you know, um, congenital talent to deep Samatha experiences. So the second part of that third clear comprehension, the second part is that I can turn any situation I'm in into a situation of practice, while the first part of the third Comprehension refers to formal meditation practice and my skill in this. The second part of that question refers to my skill in turning any situation I am encountering in my day, my life, into a situation where I can practice. A situation where I have the skill of transforming this magically into an exercise. Maybe this is the moment I exercise patience. Maybe all these people who are inefficient and slow and scattered and deluded, maybe these people are just all bodhisattvas who have taken incarnation here to help me practice patience. Maybe that's what they're doing. All these people who disturb my life, make noises, slow the process down, aren't playing stupid, if they only paid attention, they, were, they wouldn't be half as stupid. All those people are just here to teach me patience, forgiveness and forbearance. Yeah. Okay, that's what I can practice here. Patience, forgiveness, forbearance. Yeah. I acknowledge my humanity to you. Slow people, <laughs> stupid people, scattered people, deluded people, I acknowledge the shared humanity with you I am a humble uh, member of your family yeah this is maybe what I practice under these conditions maybe there are other things I can practice you know staying in the body uh, tempering my judgmental nature uh, becoming more refined uh, noticing minute changes yeah this oodles of things we can practice. If we have that set of mind, if we have that Gorchara going, we, can, we don't lose time anymore. Every situation we go into is something of a place where I can learn, where I can transform bad habits, where I can um, um, elucidate the deluded parts, and when I, where I can cultivate wholesome habits I, all, I also may have or I can even invoke habits I don't uh, have yet. Uh, this is a very potent, very, very potent teaching. So these three sampajanhas are crucial. The fourth one is called <clears throat> the sampajanya of non-delusion. And um, it is basically um, referring back to the conditioned nature of experience. In other words, it is helping me to be forgiving about myself when I can't fix the first three sampajanjas. That's one aspect of it. You know. The fourth one gives me proficient permission to make mistakes in the first three. The fourth one says, um, life as it is is um, fraught with things that don't quite work out. No plan survives contact with the enemy. (laughs) There is in every experience a dukkha factor, which I can't fudge. You can't tweak the system in a way that it is perfect. Every system is inevitably in some way faulty. There is no perfect system. There is no perfect experience. There is no perfect method. There is no perfect practice. There is no perfect meditation. So the fourth one says, do not be deluded. It says, do not lose your heart, do not lose your head, do not lose your courage, and above all, do not lose your humor. Yeah? Because, because um, it's not going to be perfect. Even if you know all this, it's still not going to be perfect. Don't delude yourself. This is a world that is precious and perishable. There is a happiness possible that is frail and sweet. And um, conditions cannot ultimately be controlled. We can evoke co- conditions that we have found to be useful. We can try to stabilize them. We should uh, call them into being if they're not there. We should strengthen them if they are. We should try to do away with things that we know are not healthy uh, or at least make them uh, wean, uh, try to wean ourselves from things we know are not healthy. Even knowing all this, with the best of intention, you know it's probably not going to be perfect. Yeah. And knowing that gives us, in many, in many ways, permission to make mistakes. Yeah. Knowing that gives us the freedom to learn. Because if you have decided that you cannot make mistakes, then you've also decided that you will not learn. Yeah, that's the the cruel truth, if we have decided it is not permissible for me to make mistakes, then you will not learn. Learning means, by definition, that you're going to mess up. You're not going to stay clean in this. And you're going to look a fool, time and again. So giving yourself permission to do exactly that, to learn and (laughs) to be forgiving, (laughs) to be looking your fool, to mess up. To waste time and to uh, get, get grubby in the process. Yeah. So that's the fourth of the Sampajani, the clear comprehensions. Say, this is still a conditioned world. With my best of intention, with my best of skills, there will be enough there to find imperfection in. Yeah. So consider these. Consider them and apply them to your notions of practice. You know, we have time here, and we have privileges, and we spend hours and days on practicing. And it, it is important that when we practice, we don't hone some of our self-perceptions. We don't hone some of our traits. What we wish to evoke is our vision of freedom, of growth, of liberation, of a heart that is capable of staying in relationship and be free of knowing and capable of compassionate action Uh, that is capable of profoundly understanding without getting cynical in the process and for that we need to be very very circumspect that our good intentions and our effort and our determination don't support some of the habits and patterns that they're not so healthy, that are part of the problem. We don't want to become fighters. We don't want to prolong that part of our uh, psyche and give that the encouragement of our determination. We want to uh, comprehend deeply what we're doing here, and some of the things we do. The way we approach meditation is is likely to have similarities like the way you approach any skill and any skill we approach with a mixture of if your life looks like mine with impatience and self judgment and uh, inflated uh ambitions which are then deflated and which then echoed with some despondency in your heart and you know you, you You can't look good in this whole thing. If you're still trying to look good, give yourself the permission to not look good. You don't need to look good for me. I don't think you need to look good for the Buddha. The Buddha is a very compassionate being. And this is the part where we probably should learn most of him. We should put in what we have to put in and then clearly comprehend with non-delusion, that even if we put in our best, it's going to be having spots and you know and warts and a few funny uh, you know kinks. So consider this fourth compre- clear comprehension about the three characteristics of existence, and particularly about the, the dukkha, the imperfection you know, aspect that this is something we know. We, we can't trick ourselves out of this with effort, with samadhi, with wisdom, with controlling, with um, method. We cannot trick ourselves out of a fundamental <coughs> mark of existence. But we can, despite that mark, put in our best efforts to grow and look at the comprehensions that surround our Development of mindfulness that's around our development of sati by applying these uh, four comprehensions. Let me quickly name them again uh, just to sum up. Clear comprehension of purpose. It's the first taataka sampajanya. Clear comprehension of suitability, of appropriateness, of ef- ef- effectiveness, that's sapaya sampajanya Clear comprehension of domain. Sagorchara: First part is, what is exactly my meditative exercise? Second part, how can I transform any situation I'm in into a situation of practice? And the fourth, asamoa sampajanya, the clear comprehension of undeludedness, which points to the truth and the, the characteristics and to an inherent imperfection in our, our pursuits. And it asks us to not lose our heart, not to lose our good humor, and not to lose our spirit in the pursuit of our practice. Yeah. Good Let me end um, this. Sampajanya, as a close friend of Sati, a referencing friend, uh, unfortunately not as famous as Sati, And yet an important friend, I trust you have understood me. Thank you for your patience and attention. Good, let's sit still for a minute and then finish with our chanting.